Um, Unity and maturity in the body of Christ. This is from chapter 4 of Ephesians, and it's verses 1 to 16, and it's on page 1175. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us has us, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before I speak. Lord, may my words be not a hindrance, but a help to your Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us today. Uh, Empty our minds and our thoughts and our hearts of things that will stand in the way of you speaking. For we know you do speak, and we ask that we may be given the gift to listen. Amen. Well, today we reach the tipping point in our letter to the Ephesians. Like all his letters, halfway through, Paul moves from theory to practice, from this is what God has done to this is what we should do. 
Those of you who are fans of alliteration, here it goes. From exposition to exhortation, from beliefs to behaviors, from creeds to deeds, and from new society to new standards. And then the word comes here in the middle of Ephesians, therefore, happens to be translated as then in the NIV, but it's exactly the same word. This is the consequence. So we now move on from this is what we understand to this is what we should do. And uh, uh, so we find that Paul urges us to live a life that befits what we are called to. And the striking thing about what he calls us to is we are called together. We are not called as individuals. We are called to be part of a team, to be part of a body. And uh, in this passage, there are three characteristics of that body. And it's the body of the whole church, but it's the body of our church too. And I hope we can actually apply that to ourselves today. Now, uh, some people have obsessions, and I have an obsession when preaching to make sure that there's a, uh, there are three points um, and they all begin with the same letter. So I'm going to ask for your forbearance for the first of three Gs. I spent almost half the preparation time of the sermon trying to think of the first G. The other two came quite easily. But these follow the passage that we've got in Ephesians. And the first is gluing. Okay, you can understand why it took me some while to do this. And for those of you who doubt it, there is no E in gluing, all right? We did check this out yesterday at the technical rehearsal, and not even the Americans put an E in gluing. But Tim reminded us last week that at the heart of the good news is the fact that we are loved without qualification. You remember that wonderful uh, verse from uh, Ephesians chapter 3, that we might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And in chapter 4, we learn that we are to live that new life as part of a Christian community. We may be called individually, but we are called to join a body. There is no such thing as the lonesome Christian. It's right to worship God in nature and the like, as some people say they do, but that can only be part of the story. Some people are bound to be individual Christians because uh, the state keeps them from meeting together, but that's not true for us. And so we need to join together. And we're not just casual associates or occasional gatherers. We are as close as being limbs and parts of a body. And that's the illustration that Paul uses. I'm currently reading a book today. Uh, I like to boast that this is my second book this year. I mean, I usually only manage one book, but this is a really good book. It's called Phoebe, and it's by a, a, a theologian called... Paula Gooder, some of you may know of her, and it's a novel. It's a novel set in Rome in the first century, and it's taking uh, the truths, the, the small truths that we know about the early church in the uh, days immediately following Jesus' resurrection and uh, ascension, uh, and it puts together the sort of uh, people who are meeting together in Rome, um, Phoebe being one of them, if you want to know where her name comes, it's in Romans chapter 16. It's very well researched and it shows us graphically the different cultures, classes, temperaments, personalities 
and gifts of the early church, men and women, slaves and free men, tradesmen, rich men and women, Jews, Romans, and they all met together. People who would have nothing in common were it not for the fact that they had got Christ in common. These are people who are entirely different. And if you think about it, that's logical because uh, we know that the early church didn't meet in buildings, they met in people's houses. Now, how could slaves meet in houses unless they were meeting side by side with people who were house owners? We know from some of the uh, context of Paul's letters that there were people from a Jewish background, from a Gentile background, there were Romans, there were Greeks, there were people from all parts, and they were meeting together. And I think sometimes today we lose out on that diversity because people can get in their cars and go to the sort of church where they've got other things in common than Christ. They're all middle class or they're all white. or they're, And we lose out by seeing the great diversity that there is by having people of every sort and background. And we praise God that that's true in this church too. But I wonder whether or not when we speak to those people, we are gravitating towards the people with whom we feel we've got something else in common other than our Christian faith. And I think that's a challenge for us. You know, uh, Russ Parker, some of you will know Russ Parker, um, who was the, uh, the director of ACORN. He, uh, his first church was in Colville in uh, Leicestershire. And there was something wrong with the church uh, that he could not identify. Things were always going wrong. They prayed through and they discovered the history of the church was that it had been built uh, by the owners of the factories so that their uh, employees could go to church but didn't have to rub shoulders with them. So there was the church for the portion, there was the church for the employees. We've got a slight link to that. I mean, it's not nearly the same, but you know that this church was built by Mr. Thomas Wright of Wright's Coal Tar Soap, who lived in Frimley Hall um, when it wasn't a hotel. And uh, his uh, employees had to walk to Frimley, which was the only uh, Anglican church around at the time. Uh, and he wanted to ensure they were all back in time to serve him tea. So uh, uh, he built, first of all, uh, the church hall and then the church came afterwards. Not quite the same. He wasn't trying to disassociate himself from them. But there is something about having great diversity. Now, what can we do in this church to ensure that we are enriched by that? And the answer is to go back to the house, to go back to the house group, the life group, as we call it, because there we are thrown together with people who have differences. Um, and we discover the richness of being close with such people. We discover that it's not just being with people of our sort that we can discover the richness of Christ. And the first thing we note, and this is in the first, um, uh, the first seven verses, the first thing we note about living in close community is that it isn't easy. What Paul doesn't say is, just relish being together with all these people with great differences, uh, with awkward personalities, because it's just wonderful. What does he say? He says in verses 2 and 3, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So it's going to be tough being part of a church that isn't made up of people all like you. 
Although you probably, knowing enough about yourself, think, thank goodness the church isn't full of people entirely like me. It's difficult, and the only way that we can glue together with those diversities is by being humble and gentle and bearing with one another. It doesn't sound like a, um, a bed of roses, does it? Bearing with one another, going through the initial stages of wanting to say, I don't really want to have a lot to do with that person, or I don't dislike them, but they're just not my sort of person. Stick with those people, because they're the ones that will help us to recognize the strength of uh, being part of one body. There's something uh, sort of contradictory about what uh, uh, Paul says here in this verse, because immediately afterwards he says there is one spirit, and yet here we're being told, maintain, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why do we need to do that if the spirit is already one? Well, here's an illustration from uh, a, a human relationship. There's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and they've got two children. Mr. Smith isn't getting on well with Mrs. Smith. They're close to uh, deciding that when the children have left home, they might have nothing in common. The children are, are competitive with each other, and they don't get on. And they don't get on with their parents, so there's a lot of not getting on together. Are they still a family? Of course they are in law, but they need to work at that, that uh, theory to make it a reality. And the same is true within our church. We need to work at the unity of the Spirit, making it a reality. We are all called together, and we need to work at that. So Paul says, be humble and gentle. Now today we're so steeped in Christian virtues that we lose how radical this instruction was. In Roman society, humility is a negative to be avoided. Pride is to be uh, aspired to because it makes you the sort of person that you are if you insist upon people recognizing how good you are. Paul turned that upside down, rather like Paul turned the word hope upside down, hope being the negative about despair really um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, portraying itself as there might be some better future. Paul made hope into a positive, and he makes humility and gentleness and bearing with one another a virtue. This is radical stuff, which we've lost the radical nature of it. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because only if we are prepared to be humble with other people, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to bear with their differences, only in that way can the gluing take place for us to be a church that God wants us to be. And the grounds for that humility, that gentleness and patience with people that we find vexing or would rather steer clear of, is that we are what we are through the grace of God and not of our own doing. If only we remember that, if we go back to the theory of Ephesians 1 to 3 and recognize that all that we've got is given as an act, act of grace from God, only then can we truly look at somebody else who in the human eyes we would want to consider ourselves better than and say, this is my brother, this is my sister. Um, and uh, God has been gracious to me and is gracious to them. And I think as a church, we also need to recognize that when we see those gifts being exercised, maybe in an upfront way, 
we should give thanks for that because the gifts are being given, but recognize that the very nature of a gift is that it is being given to somebody not because they deserve it. They haven't earned it. And so therefore we give thanks uh, without venerating the people concerned. Okay, we're getting on to uh, slightly stronger ground from gluing now in terms of uh, the G's. It's a three G's. Try and remember it at the end. In verses 7 to 12, Paul gives us a second characteristic of the sort of body that we're called to be. This is a giving church. Not just a gluing church, but a giving church. Now, don't feel that your wallets are under attack now because we're not talking about money. What Paul says in verses 7 to 12 is this. He says... Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, the examples he gives are pretty upfront ones, and you may feel yourself relieved to think, none of those gifts are mine, I'm okay, I'm let off the hook. But remember that he used lots of illustrations. Elsewhere, he talks about the gift of helping the gift of administration, the backroom stuff, the sweeping up after the, the upfront people ha- have long moved on to something else, the people who maintain rather than who uh, are, are pioneers in new areas. These are gifts to be exercised. And if you still can't recognize what your gift is, just remember that each of you here has a voice. And that voice can be used to build up or to break down. You know, sometimes I think when I'm coming to church, I think, well, I wonder what I'll get out of the service today. I wonder if I shall uh, approve of the choice of songs. I wonder if, um, if the sermon will uh, really uh, make me think. Um, I wonder if um, uh, the way it's led will be uh, to my liking. Instead of, I wonder what I'm going to bring to this service, regardless of what goes on. I wonder if um, uh, uh, when I'm sitting in the congregation, there's somebody that I can speak to that I wouldn't normally speak to who will be uplifted by what I say. Maybe some random act of kindness that I can uh, show to that person. What am I bringing, not what am I getting? These are the gifts of a church which is approaching what Christ wants us to be. And what is the purpose of each gift? It's given to equip his people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. Which leads us to the third G. We're two-thirds of the way through. Don't be discouraged. The third G is growing. In verses 14 and 15, he says this, and I'm just going to quote bits of it. uh, Until we all become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. A body is a living organism, and if it doesn't grow, it dies. It never reaches a static state, it never arrives So the maturity that Paul is calling us to will go on and on past our lives until we reach perfection in heaven. And the question is, are we maturing? Well, looking at some of you, I can see you're doing very well. (laughs) But I'm not talking of that sort of maturing. You may be maturing in all sorts of ways, but 
are you maturing in your Christian faith? Not just the head knowledge, not the chapters 1 to 3, but the chapters 4 to 6 as well. Are you developing? That's something which never stops, ever, until death separates us. But there is a phrase here, and I want us to dwell on this in the last section of the, uh, of the talk. There is a phrase um, which is a sign for us as to whether we are a maturing church, maturing in terms of our growth. And that is speaking the truth in love. Last week, Tim gave us three definitions of love. Love is self-giving, uh, without boundaries, precarious, and vulnerable. And I want to suggest a fourth definition of what love is. Love is telling people the truth. Now, this is not the opposite of telling lies. Of course, telling lies is wrong. It's being ready to say things that may be hard for the person concerned to hear. There's nothing mature about a relationship where hard truths are buried in the ground. All is polite and surface level. And when there is an awkward truth, it's not spoken about. I think one of the gifts of being uh, married or in a close family relationship is that there are people there who can tell you the truth because they love you. They can tell you uh, when you're eating uh, and eating with your mouth full and also speaking at the same time. They can tell you when you're not looking somebody in the eye when you're talking to them. They can tell you when you have a... A choice of clothes that don't suit you. But that's enough about me. <laughs> there are truths that we need to hear from other people because we don't have that perception ourselves. And these truths are palatable only because the one who hears it knows that the one who speaks it is speaking in their best interests from a heart of love which is not something, by the way, you can turn on when you want to say something awkward to somebody. You'd ignore them, and then you just say something and say, oh, but I am saying this in love. You require love to be there and love to be seen by the other person so that when they hear what you say, they know that they're not attacking you as a person. They're actually giving you a gift of some insight which you may not have yourself. They're not trying to score points over you. They're not trying to feel better for themselves by feeling that you're in a lower position. It's a gift that says, I'm telling you this because I care enough to give you this feedback. That's a sign of a mature relationship, and that's a sign of a mature church. But it also requires something of the hearer too, a readiness to hear the truth in love, opening the door inviting other people to give you an honest answer. I thank God that there are people in this church who, who say to me, and if you were, use the word honest, you know that you're allowed to say anything. I'd like some honest feedback about this. And maybe we as individuals also ought to say to people whose uh, view we trust, um, uh, whose judgment we value, look, can you give me some you know, uh, honest feedback about this? Honest says, I'm prepared to accept that which is unacceptable to me at the moment as well. And it's that sort of maturity that we should look for within our church. And this requires that we know that our identity 
is defined not by what other people think about us, not even what we think about ourselves, but our identity is based upon the fact that Christ loves us, whoever we are. And when that happens, then we can accept these things without feeling that we ourselves are being rejected or being corrected in a way that's not helpful. So that takes us full circle, back from behavior to belief, from deed to creed, from exhortation to exposition. Okay, just time for reflection now on these three things. How are we doing, how are you doing, and how are we as a church doing about gluing? Are we bearing with one another gently and humbly? Are we looking for the people who we don't naturally get on with to try to develop a relationship there? Are we giving, positively building up the Christian community by our contribution? And are we growing, notably in speaking the truth in love and inviting others to speak the truth to us? It's what God aspires for us to be as a healthy church, as a model of what he wants the whole world to be like, and the church is there as the microcosm of that. If we are doing that, then God will be thankful. And there's a great, there's a great pleasure in discovering all these new truths when we put them into practice. Amen.